can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Lord willing, today we will cover verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7. At this time, I'll ask you if you're able to stand with me. And we'll read John chapter 21, verses 1 through 7 together. And then pray and begin working through it. John chapter 21 beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and He revealed Himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of, of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of His disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Thank you. You may be seated. If you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the testimony of Your dealings with Your people. Of how You meet with us, even, Lord, in the midst of our trials and difficulties and weakness. Father, I'm reminded even of my own weakness today. And I pray that You would help to sustain my voice. Lord, that You would, for our sakes, for all of our sakes, and for Your glory, Enable me to speak clearly. Lord, open up these words, these verses to our understanding, Father. I pray that we would know you. That you would give encouragement to those who are yours. Father, I pray you would call the lost out of darkness. That salvation would visit this house and that we would see you as you are in your son. Oh, Lord, I do pray that you would protect me from error. Father, that you would guard my mouth from saying untrue things. And yet, Father, please speak through me. Give grace and power and conviction and certainty and clarity. These things, O oh God, we ask that you would do what you alone can do. Lord, I don't ask on the basis of merit as though I or any of us deserve it, but because you're good. Father, I ask these things in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So you'll recall last week we finished the Gospel of John chapter 20. And we were looking at John's purpose statement in verses 30 and 31. We were considering the focus, the special focus on the signs that Jesus did. And how the signs that Jesus performed were ultimately meant to point to who He was as the Christ, the Son of God. But then we went on to, to see even further, John made a special emphasis 
on these being written. And if you'll recall, we saw that our source of knowledge, of belief, of understanding, of certainty, of truth is always going to be connected to what is written, what is recorded in the scriptures. And then finally, as a quick summary, we saw that what is written is never meant to stay in a cold, detached form. That what is written is supposed to work in us a realization of life in His name, of knowing Christ, of loving Christ, of living for Christ. How our knowledge of Him in His Word is always meant to take us there. And so now we transition into our final chapter of John's Gospel. I say again, it is surreal to be nearing the end of this book. But I have enjoyed it and I hope that you have as well. We look together today at these first seven verses of John chapter 21. And so I just want to begin working through these things with you here at the very outset and trust the Lord will give us a a proper understanding of what's here for us. John 21 and verse 1 says this. After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and He revealed Himself in this way. The first thing that we see, and I'd like to start by calling our attention to the front of your bulletin, Matthew Henry, in light of these verses we're in today, says this, Christ is often better than His Word, but never worse. Often anticipates and outdoes the believing expectations of His people, but never disappoints them. You understand what he's saying there? Jesus did not promise to appear these additional times to His disciples in this physical way. Jesus has already shown Himself to them, risen from the dead, and He's going to come and commission them once again, we'll see. And then He's promised that the Holy Spirit's going to come after His ascension. But He never actually promised that He would come to them in this manner that He does here. And so we find that this is an encouragement of the Lord going above and beyond even what He's promised Himself to do. That's what Matthew Henry means. That He often goes above and beyond even what He's promised. He he exceeds our expectations of Him. And the first verse we look at today here, verse 1, does come to us as a great encouragement. There is a truth which is being communicated to us about the compassion and the care of Jesus Christ for His people which is set before us. After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples. As I mentioned, we already know that Jesus would appear, the Scriptures teach us, Jesus would appear to around 500 people after His resurrection. And there was an important reason that He would appear to eyewitnesses. It was His purpose to make His physical resurrection from the dead known. But it would seem that He has a purpose in appearing to these seven today that is different than just simply making His resurrection known. If we were to only consider from John's Gospel what we've seen so far, if all we were to think about was what, is what John's told us, at this point, Jesus has already made His resurrection known to Mary Magdalene, to the disciples when they were locked in the upper room together, and then to the disciples again whenever Thomas was with them. So we know of at least... Three different times Jesus has appeared to the disciples proving with perfect clarity that He has risen from the dead physically. That's what we've been looking at in the last sections of John chapter 20. Jesus making His resurrection bodily from the dead known to the disciples. Here's what I'm telling you. 
These disciples Jesus appears to today, they already knew that he had risen from the dead. And, and we know, as I mentioned already from other accounts, that he's going to go on to appear to them after this. Jesus is going to appear to them on the Mount of Olives to give his great commission to them to send them into the world. He's also, we're going to see that depicted as well in the beginning of Acts, and it's probably perhaps the same account. Jesus speaks to them immediately before his ascension, and he's promised that the Holy Spirit's going to come on Pentecost. But these disciples already knew that he was raised from the dead. And so I ask, why is it that Jesus reveals himself to them here in our text? Think of it this way. Maybe this is somewhere that you might find yourself today. These disciples, are you in the same condition as them? Many of you, perhaps, you've been born again. You've been saved. You are secure in Christ. You know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you believe that He rose from the dead. It's not a question in your mind as to whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. And yet, there's a burning need in your soul for Jesus to reveal Himself to you again. And I don't believe I'm stretching anything to bring this point out. And hopefully you'll see what I mean by this. These disciples were already totally convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead, but they needed him to further minister to them. And my question is, do you need the same? Make no mistake, Jesus is not going to physically appear to us and offer us fish and honey the way he does to these disciples. And yet, there's a promise. You remember Jesus has already told us back in John that I will come to you. I'll not leave you as orphans. That promise was yet to be fulfilled. And I don't believe it's being finally realized in our text today. That was a promise of the Holy Spirit coming. But we often need the Lord to visit and reveal Himself to us once again by His Spirit through the very Word that we're meant to believe by, as we just heard from John recently. And so I want to ask again, have you realized this about yourself? Like these disciples, have you realized that perhaps you have all the right information? You know Jesus is the Messiah. You know that He died for your sins. And you know that He was raised from the dead. And yet, you're still in a frustrated and disappointed circumstance. Just like these disciples are seen to be in our text. These disciples needed Jesus to reveal Himself. And frankly... So do we. That's the essence of our problem. No matter what the circumstance is in your life of difficulty or trial, you need the Lord to reveal Himself to you in a fresh way, in a new way. And I'm not saying that that should happen apart from His Word or His Spirit. I am saying, though, that it is a serious need that we have. And so Jesus meets it for their sake. After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. The next point we see is related to this Sea of Tiberias. We need to take note of exactly where these things are taking place. The Sea of Tiberias. Where is that at? Well, this is simply another name for the Sea of Galilee, which was a freshwater lake. It still exists today. The Sea of Galilee was also called the Sea of Tiberias. And one thing this ought to remind us of, and we've seen this throughout John's Gospel, is that this, what we're reading of, is not just a fable. It's not a parable. It's not a myth. This, what we're reading of today, is literal history. Anytime you see the use of specific names in geographic regions, it's meant to be a reminder to us that these things are literal history. What we're seeing actually took place. 
And we're not just given the Hebrew name for this region, which would have been the Sea of Galilee, but we're given the pagan name or the Roman name, as it were, the Sea of Tiberias. So these are literal events in history that are taking place. And one important thing about this particular location, the Sea of Tiberias, is this. It's related to the fact that these fishermen, these men out fishing in our text today, would have been uniquely aware of the waters that they're fishing on. This wasn't their first time venturing out on the Sea of Galilee. They'd been here often. They'd grown up fishing on these waters. And they were as close to experts as you're going to find concerning the Sea of Galilee. They know this lake. They know this sea. They've been on it multiple times throughout their lives. And one final point of significance about this Sea of Galilee is that this was exactly the place in which the beginning of Jesus' ministry to these disciples took place. Jesus summons them while they're out fishing on these same exact waters. Consider for a moment from Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, we find this. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee... He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, followed him. Now, before you ask, some of you may be thinking, if you have a sharp mind and a good memory, you may be thinking back to John's account of Peter, at least, and Andrew and these men being summoned by Jesus. If you'll recall, the Lord that he spoke initially to Andrew and we found Andrew went and told his brother. And the next thing we know, we see Jesus saying, your name shall be called Cephas in giving him a new name. Do you remember these things early on in the Gospel of John? Well, if you're thinking there's a contradiction, first, let me remind you of what we saw last week, that the differences, the distinctions between the gospel accounts are not contradictions. They're different vantage points meant to press different themes, different ideas of the same true events. And I can't I don't know for sure what the perfect correlation of these things are chronologically, but I know this. These things are given the way that they are in the different Gospels for our good, that we might see different aspects of these things. One possibility to maybe, maybe answer a curiosity would be this. Perhaps it is that Andrew first went and told Peter about Jesus, and that happens separately from what happens here as they're fishing. And it could in fact be that this point while they're fishing, when Jesus speaks to them directly, that He's actually called them to be and follow Him as disciples who would go fishing for men. But suffice it to say this for our purposes today, that this Sea of Tiberias, this Sea of Galilee, is the exact place that they were when Jesus called them to be fishers of men. That's the primary theme. That's going to be the relevant thing for us to see today. And we're going to go on to consider other accounts from both Matthew and Luke concerning this calling of them to be fishers of men as we move forward. But for now... That's the primary thing that the Sea of Tiberias, also called the Sea of Galilee, is not an insignificant coincidence. Verse two, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. 
The next thing we see is a specific list of which of the disciples were involved in this incident. The use of these names that are given here is a, another reminder to us that these things are not fables, but literal history in the life of Christ. If these things, think about it this way. Anytime you see people's names listed like this, suppose that someone were to come along and say, these things happened and all these men were involved and list out these names, if these things were made up, for one, if those men weren't actually involved, they would come along and say, ah, that's not true, I wasn't there. But also their friends and family and acquaintances would say, well, actually, no, I saw Thomas called the twin that day. He wasn't anywhere near there. You see, these lists, these specific names that are given are just another reminder, at the very least, as a verification of the historical record. But we're also reminded through the list of names as we saw recently, God takes an interest in individuals. You know, there are many times, for example, when Jesus first appeared to the disciples in the upper room after his resurrection, where we're not told who all was there. It just says the disciples. And in this instance, it tells us which disciples specifically were there. Why is that important? Well, because God does refer to his people as a group without distinction at times. And we should never underestimate the value of God's collected people. The, the collected people of God, we should never disregard the value of the, the sum total of all of God's people. And at the same time, we should never delegitimize or devalue God's purpose for individuals. And that brings me to this question. We're told the specific names of the specific disciples who are here. Do you think about and realize that God has a specific interest in you as an individual? God is specifically interested in you here today. It's not just God speaking to all of us collectively, though that's true. But God speaking specifically to you and to me. And we're to hear from God in a very specific and individual way. You are much more than simply a face in the crowd. You're not just one of many as you gather here with me. Think of it this way. The Lamb's book of life does not merely have one line in it which reads God's people, but every individual name is written in this book. Now, you might say, brother, that's an anthropomorphism. Is there an actual physical literal book that's got words written in it? Well, I don't know. We're going to ask God someday. But you read the language of the scriptures and there's a reference to the individual names which make up that book. God deals with and is interested in us as individuals. We see this list of names. The next thing we should ask is, is there anything significant about the particular disciples which are listed here? Is this just a random list of people who happen to be there? Or is there anything unique to them which is going to help us to understand what's going on here? Notice this. Not all of the remaining 11 disciples at this point realize that the book of Acts, we're going to go see where Judas gets replaced with another Matthias. But at this point, there's only 11. Judas has left. The 11 are not all gathered here. There's only seven of them listed. What is unique about the seven that are listed here? I'm going to suggest to you more than suggest, hopefully demonstrate there are at least two specific things that stand out about the men who are listed here. And it's immediately relevant to the whole point of this entire chapter, really, but especially this first half of this chapter. What are the two things? The first is that there is a, a tendency in those who are listed here towards doubt and failure and sin, which has been evidenced in these first three men. Consider this. The first that we're told about Simon Peter. 
The epitome of denial and failure in the Scriptures. He has failed the Lord miserably. The next we're told is Thomas. We just got done seeing his failure and doubting, giving God an ultimatum, demanding that he put his hands in his side before he believes. And then what about this figure, Nathaniel of Canaan? What do we know about this guy? What's his tendency, his propensity? Do you remember whenever he was first told by Philip that we found the Messiah? It's Jesus of Nazareth. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's one who's got a propensity towards disbelieving until he sees something, until he has it fulfilled ultimately in him. I'm saying this characterizes these first three men. What about the next four? What is it when we put these things together? The first thing I argue that we see is failure. Well, it's not as though only Peter and you might argue with me and you might say, well, Nathaniel's his was just a pursuit of truth. It wasn't actually failure. Jesus said an Israelite indeed in whom there's no guile. And so maybe maybe we can overlook that. But the fact is, all of these men had failed. And that's evidenced by the fact that they're hiding in fear And also remember this, when Mary Magdalene first went to tell the disciples Jesus had risen, how many of them believed her? None of them. She was disregarded by all of them. So all of the disciples failed to believe the Lord. They all failed to understand that he must rise from the dead. And these three stand out to us as very public figures concerning their shame. Very public, all three of them. And they're mentioned by name. So the first trait of these seven men who are listed is, I believe, demonstrating at least the first two to be sure is failure. What of the second trait? The second seems to be related to their interest in and their familiarity with fishing. Now, I know we're not told the identity of the final two here. It's very likely that one of them was Andrew. It's very likely Simon Peter's brother, who was a fisherman himself. But we know at least this. We're told that it was Simon Peter. We're told that after this, it was Simon Peter. It was Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, we know, fishermen as well. And likely the other unnamed two, one of them was very much likely Andrew. And who knows who the final one is. But if you were to look at a common theme in the names that are given, the two primary themes that stand out in these individuals is failure and fishermen. Those are the two themes, I believe, are demonstrated in this. And very much that's going to make more sense to us, hopefully, as we work through the context. So we summarize this, that this list of names are followers of Jesus who had publicly failed him as their as his witnesses and had primarily been fishermen by trade before. With those things, let's look together into the next verses. Verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. You can almost imagine this scene. You can almost see these men sitting around together talking. They're perplexed, belly aching about their own failures, their confusion. When is the Lord going to appear to us again? What's going to happen next? They're all confused and muddled. And you can see and picture in your mind's eye in the middle of their confusion and their sorrow. Peter stands up and says, I'm going fishing. I mean, almost as if Peter's saying, I'd rather do something than nothing. I can't just sit around on my hands and do nothing while I wait. Surely you can relate to this. You ever experience this when life seems to kind of stand still and you're left with nothing but your own thoughts before God? 
You, you feel like I just I can't sit here and do nothing and just think and meditate and be still before him. I've got to do something, anything. And I would suggest to you that when you're gripped with this kind of desperate restlessness, perhaps the very best thing you can do is to be still and to know that he is God to be still before God. That sounds extraordinarily simple, but I, I testify from my own experience. It's very difficult to do. It's very difficult just to... This is one of the reasons we're such terrible uh, interceders or prayers. We don't do very good at prayer. Why? Because we, we just feel like we've got to do something. I can't just sit still before God in prayer. I'm either going to get bored and fall asleep perhaps, or I'm going to get restless and have to get up and go do something. Well, I think Peter demonstrates this restlessness in himself, but not only restlessness much more Peter says to them I'm going fishing let me put this to you there's nothing inherently wrong about these disciples going fishing amen Seth nothing inherently wrong about going fishing David there's nothing wrong with that is there nothing wrong with brothers in the Lord going out and wetting a hook wonderful thing to do it's not inherently wrong that he does that but there's some things represented in this. As a matter of fact, Jesus proves that it's not wrong because he gives them a full net of fish at the end of our scenario today. Jesus would not have given them that large haul if it wasn't good that they were out there fishing. There is goodness in it. But there are things represented in this in the context that show us some problems. What is represented in Peter's determination to return to his fishing nets? You remember I read for you from Mark chapter 1. Listen to this in verses 17 and 18. And Jesus said to them, they're out fishing. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Whenever you go on and read, we find out that, that James and John, they say, Dad, we're out of here. These hired hands can help you from now on. We're going to follow the Messiah. We're going to follow Christ. They gave everything up to go and follow him and become fishers of men. Jesus has declared to them they're no longer going to be fishers of fish, but that they would be fishers of men. Can you imagine the joy, the excitement they must have felt, especially Peter, to be selected, hand selected by Christ to be his witness to the world? Then what happens? And enters the failure. You're going to be fishers of men. You're going to be my witnesses to the world. And then here you are. As supposed to be Christ's witness. And you deny him before men. You're hiding in an upper room. Afraid to testify of him. Afraid to lose your life. You failed him. Miserably failed him. You remember the bitter weeping that Peter had. Whenever he saw the Lord's face. After he's denied him. He sees his face and he's moved deeply. He goes out and weeps bitterly after this. It's as though Peter says in this context, he's all washed up. He's no longer worthy to catch men for Christ. Jesus said, you will be fishers of men. Now it's as though Peter and the others, they couldn't bear the weight of shame and hypocrisy. How are you going to call other people to come and follow Christ when you yourself have so miserably failed? Peter says, I'm no longer going to be a fisher of men. I'm not qualified. I'm not fitted to be a fisher of men. I'm going back to the nets that I'd once left. I need to make an application. Do you see the point in this? You see how this applies to you? 
How many times has the weight of your failure and shame caused you to think, I'm no longer worthy to serve Him? Because of this failure, there's no way that I can serve Him. Are we not tempted to just throw in the towel and return to those things that we once found some kind of purpose in? Without giving you all the gory details, I can distinctly remember a time in my life years ago whenever I had some sin in my life and I'd failed the Lord. And I remember just being so utterly crushed by what I'd done. And I was scheduled to preach at a church the following Sunday. How in the world am I going to go stand in front of people in light of knowing what I've done? I can't, I'm no longer worthy. I'm no longer fitted. I practically weep through the whole sermon, I, I remember. How is it that we're fitted? Are we worthy any longer? He says, you're going to be fishers of men. Peter says, I'm going fishing. The next thing we see is the influence that Peter had over the others. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. They said, we're going to go with you, Peter. No doubt Peter was a natural chosen leader. Peter was the one who was quick to voice his opinion and others were quick to follow his lead. But consider this, how great a responsibility it is to carry sway with other people. How much influence do you have over whether it's a younger sibling or a spouse or people you work with, people in the community, people in this church? If you begin to see a measure of influence over people, there's a great responsibility that comes with that. Here, Peter says, I'm going fishing again, not inherently wrong to go and fish. Not a bad thing. But what's reflected in this, I hope you'll come to see, is a terrible, terrible thing. You see, it'd be easy for us to at this point single Peter out and lay all the blame on him. But don't forget, these others with him have failed in the exact same way. And it would seem that Peter, as is so often the case in the Scriptures, Peter is the one who's merely giving voice to the stirrings that already existed in their own hearts. This isn't the first time Peter speaks kind of on behalf of everybody there. He's just the one dumb enough to open his mouth and say what he's thinking. But it's often the case that the others are feeling and thinking the exact same thing in their own hearts. As an application, I just want to caution you to be sensitive to the influence you have over others, but also to never let your convictions be determined by the decisions of someone else. It's, not, it's good if you find someone who's godly and seeking the Lord to let them influence you in the direction of your life. But goodness, don't ever fully sell yourself out to the opinions of another person. Almost as though we think sometimes if I can jump on the bandwagon, this other person's going fishing, they're going this direction. Well, it was their idea. I'm going to throw in with them. Take responsibility for your own decisions. No matter who the person is, no matter how charismatic or trustworthy you think that they are, develop your convictions for yourself. They said to him, we'll go with you. And the last part of verse three says they went out and got into the boat. But that night... They caught nothing. Now, we're going to see that their failure to catch any fish this night is relevant and it's a parallel to this previous miracle that we've seen. The night before, the time before when Jesus first calls them, they'd fished through the night. We're going to see they didn't catch anything that time either. So there's a parallel, but there's also something being illustrated to us about the mercy of God in this text. Let me explain. 
Who was it who determined that they would fish all night without catching anything? Do you suppose that the Lord Himself had a purpose in them not catching anything? God commands all of His creation. He can tell a fish, come here and give me some money out of your mouth. And He can make that happen. He can command, He commands everything. Why is it? Do you think it's an accident that they were expending themselves, all their strength, through the night without catching a single fish? I say the Lord did this with a good purpose in mind. Having failed as followers of Christ, these disciples thought they would return to that which they knew they were good at. Well, we're no good. We're all washed up. There's no way we can go and catch men. Well, we at least still know how to catch fish. We'll go do that. We'll go back to the thing we know we're able to do. We're professional fishers. They knew what they're doing. And yet, the Lord had them fail at it. Now, my question is, how often are we consumed by our failures to the degree that we don't even pause to consider what it is the Lord may be teaching and showing us in the midst of our failure, through our failure? Does that happen to you? Uh, I don't understand. I'm doing everything I know to do, and yet it's still not working. Well, The Lord, I believe, had a very significant purpose in them laboring through the night and not catching a single fish. Can you see the thought developing here? Can you see the parallels developing between being a fisher of fish and a fisher of men? What's going on here? Well, hopefully it'll get clearer to us as we work forward. The next verse tells us, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So at the end of a long and tiresome night, the Lord Jesus Christ is right there watching them. They didn't know where he was, but he certainly knew where they were. Let me ask you this. In all your toiling and striving, have you ever come to the end of yourself and asked, Where is God? Where is the Lord right now? Whatever I'm enduring, I am not succeeding. I'm failing miserably in what I'm striving after. Where is the Lord? Well, the encouragement is that though we may have lost sight of Him, He never loses sight of us. He knew exactly where they were and where to find them. He he organized and ordered this entire unfolding of events. Jesus is overseeing. It's reminded of the quote by Charles Spurgeon. He who counts the stars and calls them by their names is in no danger of forgetting his own children. He doesn't forget you. He hasn't forgotten anything. He's overseeing. He's actually intending and purposing whatever failures you're experiencing, whatever things that you're not measuring up in the way you wish you did are according to his good purpose and design. And then we see in verse five, almost Almost as if Spurgeon in that quote that I shared was thinking about this text. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. Children. Isn't that a gentle way to address them? Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. They say, No, we're going to go back and be fishers of fish. We're going to go back and invest ourselves and our lives in that which we're comfortable with and confident in. Wouldn't you expect that the Lord would reprimand them at this point and say, what's wrong with you, you fools? Why are you out here spending yourselves seeking to catch fish? I told you to catch men. Why are you fishing again? Not again because fishing's evil, but because the heart and not being content and intentional about that which God had given them to do. And their feelings of unworthiness and failure out there pursuing some sense of satisfaction and self-accomplishment. 
Jesus doesn't come to them that way. He says, children, children. It's rather emphatic in the Greek that this is a term of endearment and compassion that he uses with them. Little ones, do you have any fish? He's not condescending. He's coming to them in kindness. I argue that when you feel overwhelmed, as these disciples surely did, by a sense of your own failure before God, how do you expect Him to address you when you come to Him? How many prayers of Christian people have been hindered because of our failures and we expect that God is ready to meet us with anger and disappointment and a scowl? How can I go to Him now after what I've done? I'm nothing but a no-good hypocrite. He's not interested in hearing from me. Jesus meets His own when they come to Him. He initiates. He addresses them. And He says, children. I believe the heart of God is revealed towards His people when they're wayward in our text. He calls to them with tenderness and care and says, children. He says, children to them. When you fail the Lord... And you've taken your eyes off of Him and what He specifically commanded for you to do. When you feel individually useless, unworthy, do you know that the Lord is prepared to receive you back as one of His children? Do you know that that's the way He's ready to receive you? And notice, notice how Jesus, in His receiving of them, it doesn't mean that He doesn't acknowledge or deal with the immediate failure that they had. If we have some idea that when I come back to God, He's going to receive me as a child, and I'm just going to not have any of the failures addressed or dealt with at all, that's not His love goes beyond that. See, our, time, our understanding of love sometimes is skewed. We think, well, real love means I'm not ever going to deal with the things that are wrong in a person. That's not real love. Jesus addresses the issue, and He's got a purpose and a point in it. You see, it was Jesus' purpose to bring up the fact that they hadn't caught anything in order that He might reveal something to them. So He asks, children, have you caught anything? They say, no. Verse 6, He said to them, cast the nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now, it seems... Nearly impossible, doesn't it? Us having grown up and learned the Bible and heard these stories again and again. If you were there in the boat this day and all of a sudden somebody you don't can't really see is on the shore and they say, let down your nets for a catch after a night full of not catching anything. Don't you think that you would remember and think this must be the Lord? Doesn't it seem almost amazing that they don't recognize him before they catch all the fish? A lot of the similarities to what happened before. And perhaps, perhaps some of them were thinking in their hearts at this moment. Could it be him? Is this the Lord? Nevertheless, they obey his command. Let down their nets. And upon letting down their nets. Listening to him, they find that they're overflowing with fish. And that's exactly what happened the first time. We find that the boats were actually sinking the first time. And we'll read a section that talks about that here towards the end. But they let down their nets. And there is this demonstration to these disciples that's parallel with the first time that He had done a similar miracle for them. Now, 
I believe that this is an incredible demonstration of power, which reveals to these disciples that it was the Lord. It, it shows them the greatness of who he is. But remember something. They already know that he's risen from the dead. They already know he's God. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And so what's the real essence of what's going on in these verses here today? What is it that Jesus is communicating to them and to us? What is being shown to us? What is the, the spiritual application in light of the context here? Well, let me put it to you this way. These disciples were deflated and beleaguered and feeling as though they were completely unfit for ministry. Do you see the issue here? At this point, surely they know He's risen from the dead. We're trusting Him. We're saved. He's appeared to us. He's spoken peace to us. We've seen His scars. We know He saved us. But there's no way we're going to be of any use in ministry at this point. There's no way we're going to get to be witnesses for Him after our failures and what we've done. Now think of the striking parallels here. Surely they believed that whatever hopes they had were gone of being witnesses. They disqualified themselves. They're no longer fitted to catch men. So think of the picture. Think of the illustration here. They're not able to catch men, so they return to what they thought they could do. Catch fish. That's what we're able to do. We're not fitted to catch men, but we are able to catch fish. And lo and behold, they couldn't even do that. Do you see the illustration in these things? Do you see what's pictured here? They're not even able to do the one thing they thought they should have been able to do without Him providing the fish for them. Now what does this communicate to us? What is really being communicated here? We're going to see this entire section. Jesus' appearance to them here is leading toward the restoration of Peter. And the emphatic restoration of Peter, your responsibility is to feed my sheep. You're going to minister. You're going to serve and lead. You're going to be responsible for these people. Yes, you failed, but you're restored for ministry. That's the picture of this restoration for ministry. Those who had failed. Now think of it this way. Their ability to catch men was not ultimately dependent upon their abilities or worthiness to be his witnesses. In the exact same way that their proficiency at fishing did not ultimately determine whether they would catch fish. Professional fishers fish all through the night. They don't catch anything. Well, we thought this is what we were still able to do. No, you're not. You think this is what's in you is what makes you able to do this. It's not. I didn't call you to be fishers of men because you were worthy or because you were able to do it without me. You failed. You denied me. You've doubted me because you weren't looking to and trusting me. You see the picture here. They're utterly and completely dependent upon Jesus in both cases, with men and with fish. And so, what's the response to this supernatural haul of fish? Verse 7, That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. In performing this miracle, Jesus opens John's mind to remember what he'd done before. He immediately realizes who it was that was talking to them. When the fish are overfilling the nets, John realizes who it was. I want you to listen. The account from Luke chapter 5. We'll consider it now and then once again toward the close. Luke chapter 5. Listen to the first account that Luke gives of this prior miracle. And think about what's going on here. Beginning in verse 1. 
On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I read that to give us a sense of what had happened before and what exactly it is that John's remembering. John was an eyewitness. John was there. John remembers. John believes according to what had already happened when he sees what Jesus has told them to do in our text today. And as a result of his believing, he immediately speaks to Peter. Now, I find when reading the scriptures that there does seem to be a very unique friendship and relationship between Peter and John. John loved Peter. He cared about Peter deeply. And it's interesting in our text that Peter, it says that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you suppose that John would say to everybody on the boat, it's the Lord? Why does he single Peter out here, do you suppose? Well, I believe the reason he does is because he had a sense of Peter's great sorrow at his failure. That John had a sense of surely perhaps even that's some of the things they've been discussing. As a matter of fact, it was Peter's idea to go fishing. Peter's idea to go back to their nets. And do you suppose that maybe John had somewhat of an insight of the relationship between Peter's returning to his nets and his sense of failure and unworthiness to be a fisher of men? And so he says to Peter, it's the Lord remembering what Jesus had done before. And so how does Peter respond to John's testimony? What does Peter say? John says, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. I've got to be honest with you. I was telling Wayne even before the Sunday school this morning, how can you hear this and not be compelled? Have you ever heard a more compelling thing in all your life? It's the Lord and diving into the sea without even waiting, without stopping. I'm going to get near to where he is completely irrational, totally incredible that he would do such a thing, a restless, complete abandonment of himself to go after the Lord. Is there anything more incredible or dramatic that you could envision? It's compelling. We see Peter acting with desperation and abandonment. Now, it might seem kind of odd to us. Have you ever heard of this account and thought, why did Peter put clothes back on to dive into the water? Is that an odd thing? 
Seems kind of like an odd thing to read. Wouldn't you imagine if someone's going to dive into the water, they're going to take something off, not put something on. Well, let me suggest to you that the reason why this is given is primarily in relationship to the work he'd been doing. That's what it says. He put on his outer garment. Why? For he was stripped for work. So here's the emphasis. The emphasis, the significance is not that he put on a shirt or whatever it would have been to dive into the water. And it may have something to do with he knew who was on the other side of the swim he was about to make. He's heading to the Lord. And it may be related to a kind of reverence or even a kind of desire to have some kind of covering before the Lord he'd sinned against and denied. But I don't want to speculate on those things. The text tells us that he had his garment, outer garment off because he was stripped for work. That tells us this. He had labored through the night. He'd taken off the outer garment so that he could work, so that he could fish, so that he could strain and sweat. Strain his muscles and work. And this putting on of this garment at the very least represents this. He's no longer toiling away with fish. He's stopping the work. That's what it represents. He took the garment off to work and to fish. He's putting it back on. He's done working. And he's going to be with the Lord. He's going to the Lord. Now, the next thing we see after Peter puts his outer garment back on is illogical. Think of it this way. The rest of the disciples, they were going to Jesus as well. And what's fascinating is we don't actually see Jesus and, and Peter talking at all before the other disciples get there. Maybe they did. It's not recorded for us, though. So what's the big deal here? Why is it that Peter casts himself into the sea in the way that he does? Well, consider this. Consider the contrast between our text and what happened in the first miracle like it. Think of this. The first time that Jesus performs the miracle in providing this fish, these multiple fish that are overfilling the nets. Verse 8 of Luke 5 told us this. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, now see this. The first time, Peter says, I'm not worthy of being near you. Jesus provides these fish. Peter realizes this is God who's in front of me. I'm not worthy of being in front of God. He falls down in humility and desperation. At the first miracle, Peter is overwhelmed by a sense of his own sin before the living God. Now think of this. The, the context that Peter first is summoned to go and be a fisher of men, he recognizes and is uniquely aware of his guilt and sin. At the very beginning, when Jesus called me, I was a worthless sinner, not worthy of being his witness. In this context, Jesus does the same miracle and instead of being overwhelmed by his guilt and shame, rather than that, he rushes with everything in him to a nearer proximity with the Lord. The first time he says, depart from me. The second time he rushes to him. Do you see this? Do you see the glory that's shown us in this? It's almost as though Peter's realized, and maybe I'm speculating, but I don't think so. In remembering this first scene, this almost identical scene, it's as though Peter realizes and remembers what was true of him when the Lord first called him. It's as though Peter's remembering, almost we could imagine Peter remembering that Jesus did not tell him and the others he was going to make them fishers of men because they were worthy. At the very context that he's summoned to be a fisher of men, he was unworthy. He was a sinful man at the beginning. 
And it wasn't his sinlessness that qualified him to be a fisher of men. It was Christ who had summoned him who qualified him to be a fisher of men. He did not call them because they were worthy. The summons of Christ upon them was not a reward for their faithfulness. He called them to be fishers of men when they were sinners. And the overarching theme of this entire section we're going through of Scripture is that of restoration. These disciples, though they had seen the risen Lord, were sorrowful and ashamed according to their failure. And He comes to them. He reveals Himself to them again in order that they might be encouraged and restored. And we're going to see that specifically in Peter's case here in the coming weeks. So what's the charge? What's the application to us? What do you gain out of hearing these things today? My burden is that we would be convinced of the same thing that Peter came to realize on this occasion. That the salvation that you've come to know, that I have come to know, it's not on the basis of our merit. It's not on the basis of anything we have done. It's on the basis of Christ our Savior. That God has shown His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. And if He's called you to speak to the lost world, it's not your righteousness that you're proclaiming. It's His. It's His merit, His goodness. It's this Jesus. That's the thing. And you may feel cast down because of your failure. The charge is not to ignore your failure or to completely disregard it as though it didn't matter. It's to see that His love, His goodness, His cross is that which is canceled out and taken care of your sin and failure, your doubt. So the final charge today is this. Whether for the first time, if you're lost, if you're unconverted, you're without Christ, You have a knowledge of your sin and you know that when you stand before God that you will be counted guilty. You've broken God's law. You are not worthy of standing before Him. This is the first time the charge is to see as Peter does here for perhaps the thousandth time some of you to forsake everything. Forsake the nets. Forsake the boat. And dive yourself into the ocean pursuing Christ. Pursuing the One whose blood was shed for your soul. That you would fly to Him. Make haste. Be illogical. Do something that doesn't make sense to you. Hear the Word of Christ. Hear all you have to hear is it's the Lord. The Lord sees you. The Lord's watching you. The Lord says, come to me. You hear that. And everyone around you says, why would you stop? Why would you abandon those things that you're doing now? Because I found something worth more. And I know I'm guilty. I know I failed Him. But it's the Lord. It's as though Peter remembered his own words. When asked, who do men say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And again, whenever the multitudes depart and he asks, will you leave also? Peter says, where will we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. That's what Peter was doing. Diving towards him. And I pray that we would see exactly and we'll go on to see in the weeks to come what that restoration looked like. Next week, we'll consider some other things. In verses 8 through 14, but then we'll see how it is the Lord graciously and clearly engages with us when we do return to Him. But here's my final charge. If you're lost and without Christ, fly to Him today and be saved on His merits and not your own. And if you as a Christian are feeling like my access to God is limited by my failures, or my ability to be useful to Him is limited by my failures, my charge to you is 
Go to Him. Let Him be the judge of that. It's kind of like this. You think I'm not going to be able to catch men. I'm not going to be able to be useful to God because of my failure. And He shows through the miracle with the fish. The amount of fish that are caught isn't up to you or your worthiness. It's His power and His command. That's what's illustrated in these things. So with those things, I'll ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I pray that You would apply these truths to our heart. That we would see Jesus Christ grow in our love for Him, our trust in Him. That You would give us an abandonment that clings to Him and casts ourselves upon Him as our only hope. Lord, comfort the afflicted. Comfort those who are confused and sorrowful over sin that yet remains. And I pray that You, by Your grace, would lead us to repentance and faith in Your Son. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.